0: It would be easy to do all the fun things in Daniel and and maybe skip over the rest, but I am an expositor and I'm committed to going through all of it, and I'm convinced that God has all of it in there for a good reason. This morning we're going to look at the first eight verses, next week we'll take the rest. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, After the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Yulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Father, we submit our hearts to you at this moment, asking that, with these visions, this revelation that you gave to Daniel, that we might comprehend and be able to apply the relevant truths that are here for our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever we meet famous people, there is a bit of intimidation that occurs. There is a measure of greatness to which they have attained, they have arrived That's how we usually approach them. And it's a little intimidating. I remember when I first met Billy Graham and how shaky that was. See him coming down the hall and Franklin, his son, introduced me to him. And I shook his hand and said, glad to meet you. And he was, of course, very gracious. He said, oh, I've heard about you. And I'm thinking, oh, give me a break. You've heard about me. I didn't say that to him, but I felt like Peter. You know, I wanted to say, let's just build three tabernacles right here. One for you, one for me, and one for Franklin. It is good that we are here. And I remember the time I met Amelda Marcos in Washington, D.C. and just shook hands with her. And I didn't mean to do this consciously, but I looked down at her shoes as I met her. And afterwards, I felt like such a dork. It's just intimidating meeting people who are that famous. There was an article in the newspaper about a woman in Santa Fe who was in an ice cream parlor up on Canyon Road by all the shops in Santa Fe. In the ice cream parlor was Robert Redford in between takes in one of his movies. She was aware that he was there, but she tried to downplay it and not be overtly conscious about his presence. She ordered an ice cream, still trying to play it all down. And walked out of the shop, she was down the street, she realized she didn't have the ice cream cone that she had bought and paid for. She went back to the parlor, told the man behind the counter that she wanted the ice cream cone that she had paid for. Robert Redford overheard it, he was still in the shop, and he said, Madam, I think you'll find it right where you put it, in your purse. (laughs) We do crazy things around famous people. But what constitutes a truly great man or a great woman? And in these first eight verses, that is what we will focus on the great and the not so great. One thing for sure is that as man's measure of greatness is very different from God's measure of greatness. We are enamored by the rich, the famous, the beautiful, the handsome, those who are very successful, that doesn't play an an inch with God. God is preoccupied with the hearts. Man is preoccupied with the outward appearance of success and greatness. Two different measuring sticks for looking at greatness. In fact, Jesus said, and this should put it all in perspective, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. Everything that man values is an abomination to God. God has a different value system. This warped idea of greatness is even found among the disciples of Jesus. We remember they were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it was this wrong view of greatness that caused the fall of of a man called Diotrephes in the New Testament. John said he loved to have the preeminence. He loved people knowing that he was a great one. Very different from God's view. We, however, must decide which view of greatness we will pursue, God's or man's. And you'll find that essentially... Whatever greatness a man can attain to, apart from God, pales in comparison to true spiritual greatness. Let me give you an example. It doesn't always work this way, but in this case it did. There were two brothers, and after Sunday school they were discussing their life's goal. The first brother said he wanted to be rich and famous. The second brother's goal was to serve Christ completely and fully in his lifetime. That second brother achieved his goal. His name was David Livingstone, the medical missionary and explorer who went throughout Africa. The second brother, David Livingstone, became a servant of God. The first brother, who wanted to be rich and famous, became rich. But his fame was attributed to another. And on his tombstone were these words, here lies the brother of David Livingstone. And I think in God's kingdom it's always that way. Spiritual greatness endures forever. The greatness of this world is but a passing kind of a flame. Now remember as we get into these verses that this is all prophetic. Uh, these are events, these are people that are written about before they're even born. In some cases, hundreds of years before they are born. In great detail. This is the second vision out of four visions that Daniel gets. Remember Daniel's visions. Basically, he sees four kingdoms. He sees Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire coming from that time forward into the future. The vision in chapter 8 gives us details about those middle two kingdoms, Medo-Persia and Greece, as we will see. However, I want to look not at kingdoms as much as men this morning. I want to look at the difference between three different individuals that are mentioned in these verses. A prophet named Daniel, a Persian named Cyrus, and for the sake of outline, a prodigy named Alexander the Great. Let's look at Daniel. Verse 1 the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so we're a few chapters back chronologically, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Daniel, the prophet, was not a great person in the eyes of the world. He would be not considered great. In fact, he was a Jew, and the Jews were persecuted at that time and throughout history. He was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1. The Jews were despised by Egyptians historically, Babylonians, Assyrians, Seleucids, Germans, on and on and on has the persecution of God's people been there. And Daniel's stature as a young teenager moved into Babylon would not be considered great in the eyes of the world. A non-entity. Even though he had a government post, not a big deal. He would not be considered great. Yet to God, Daniel was great. God revealed to Daniel vision after dream after revelation. And besides that, being Jewish, he was the apple of God's eye. God told that to Zechariah. Whoever touches you, Israel, touches the apple of my eye. That's a figurative expression for the cornea of the eye. In other words, God is saying, whoever hassles you pokes me in the eye. I take it personally. Despised by men, rejected by men, but great in the sight of God. Now, in verse 1, even Daniel has a sense of amazement that the God of heaven and earth would give him this revelation. Notice the way it's phrased. It says, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I think Daniel is surprised and thrilled that of all people God could choose, God chose this insignificant person way out there in the backwaters of Babylon, one who's been displaced from his home. You know, I found something. I found a truth that people who are greatly used by God are greatly amazed that they're used by God. I find that to be sort of a a thing all the way down the line. And when a person starts not getting greatly amazed that he's used by God and thinks that he's great, he's on the way down. That's why I'm always leery when I hear someone go on national television and flippantly say, yeah, you know, I was brushing my teeth this morning and God spoke to me. Yeah, God talks to me like that all the time. And they make this big public event out of it. I find in the Scripture that when God talked to people, it humbled them. They fell on their faces. They were amazed that God would even do such a thing. Some people even take it a step further and they act indispensable. I'm God's chosen vessel. How could God do His work without me? We're all familiar with a notable evangelist from the South who fell into sexual impropriety and refused the discipline of his board and his denomination because he was too indispensable to the kingdom work, he thought. The world will never be reached without me, he said. God has given me this commission. And I think that's tragic. In comparison to all that, listen to some of the greats throughout biblical history. When God got a hold of their life, how they responded. Moses, God met him at the burning bush. Moses didn't say there, hey, it's about time. I'm an important person, God. It's about time that you spoke to me. On the contrary, Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? King Saul, at first, was humble when God got a hold of his life. He turned prideful, but at first he said, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Then there was King David. As God began to use David, David himself said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my family that you have brought me this far? Then there's Paul the Apostle, greatly used by God, who in one of his letters said, Unto me, less than the least of all the saints is this grace given. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, Great men never know that they're great. And that's right in the language of Daniel in the first verse. I, even I, Daniel was shocked that he became a vessel of God. So Daniel was a great man in the eyes of God, greatly used by God, greatly amazed that God would use him. Not only was he great because God spoke visions, dreams, and revelations, that he was a political figure in Babylon, he was great because of his character. Remember from chapter 1 on, he made no compromise in Babylon. He determined not to be defiled, with the king's meet in chapter 1. In chapter 6, he distinguished himself above everybody else because he had an excellent spirit that was in him. Now, which would you prefer? What kind of greatness do you want? you want to be king of the mountain for a day or a child of God forever? King of the mountain for a day is what all of the greats throughout history have aspired to, apart from God, like the two were about to meet. Being great for eternity is something that Daniel looked forward to. I want to apply this further, if you'd allow me. Parents, you have hopes for your children. I bet if you were to interview every parent, and you'd say, tell me about your kid. What do you want from his life or her life? I think if they are honest, they'd say, I want that child to be a great person. There are certain things. I have aspirations for that kid. But how do you define great? Oh, I know those grades are awfully important to you. But to what end? For what purpose? I know mastering that sport would be awesome if you'd be a great player on the team. But wouldn't it be really great to have a kid who grew up like Daniel, who stayed true to his God from a youth all the way up to old age? That is true greatness. I found a prayer written by General Douglas MacArthur for his son. Let me read it to you. Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak, brave enough to face himself when he is afraid, one who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat, humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishes will not take the place of deeds. A son who will know thee, O God, that to know himself is the foundation stone of knowledge. Build me a son whose heart will be clear, whose goal will be high. A son who will master himself before he seeks to master other men. One who will reach into the future yet never forget the past. And after all these things are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor that he may always be serious, should never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. It's a great, great prayer for a son. We don't have record of Daniel's parents after this. All we know is that Daniel was a teenager taken captive into Babylon. But I'm sure that Daniel, with that kind of a background, had parents, Jewish parents in Jerusalem, who wanted Daniel to be a great man. They named him God is my judge. That's what Daniel means. Their prayer was answered. Despised in the eyes of the world, great in the eyes of God. Now let's look at a couple other quote-unquote great characters. Second comes a Persian named Cyrus. First was the prophet Daniel, now a Persian named Cyrus. He is mentioned by vision in verses 3 and 4. Uh, I lifted my eyes. Now bear with me, you'll understand who it is in a moment. I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. The two horns were high, the one was higher than the other. The higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there anything that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. After reading that, you go, Daniel, what on earth are you talking about? You must have had a huge burrito last night before bed to get a dream like this. The vision is strange, granted. A ram with two horns, that's typical. What is not typical is that one horn grows after the first one and is larger than the first one. And this ram is unusual. It's a ram with an attitude. It is going to conquer. It moves westward, northward, southward, and just sort of takes everything that is in its path with it. It's very, very strong. Now, we could guess all day long as to what this is, but why when we have it in our chapter? Look at verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Isn't that great? It's written right for you. The interpretation was given Daniel when he had the vision. A guy by the name of Ammonius Marcellinus, a 4th century historian said, on all of the rulers of Persia and Medo-Persia, they bore a ram or the head of a ram on some part of their garments or some part of their armor, especially when they went to battle. When a Persian monarch or general stepped in front of his troops for battle, he would have a ram somewhere on his attire. And historically, even in the occultic symbol of the zodiac, the Ares, the ram, is always linked with ancient Persia. It was on their coins. On the head of some of their coins was the head of a ram. On the tails was a recumbent ram. It became the symbol of ancient Medo-Persia. Now, the two horns that are seen are historically accurate because there were two parts of the Medo-Persian empire. They both grew. One came up second and grew stronger. First was the king of Media. And at the time that Daniel saw this vision, Media was the big empire. It was substantial. It helped Babylon conquer Assyria already in 612 B.C. On the other hand, Persia was insignificant. It was a nothing empire. It had no strength at all. It came up later. A guy by the name of Cyrus and his son Cambyses II became the rulers of Persia, united the Medes and the Persians together, but the Persian part of it grew and became the strongest element in that empire. Very, very true to form. The Persians came from beyond the Euphrates River and they moved swiftly with great furor in three directions incidentally. Three directions. First of all, they moved westward and they conquered Babylon, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, Syria. They then turned and moved northward Conquering the Caspian Sea areas, Iberia, Albania. And then they moved southward conquering uh, Israel, Egypt, Ethiopia, and some of the North African nations. Just as this ram was seen in the vision. And, of course, the interpretation is given in verse 20. We know that it's the kings of Media and Persia. Now, how could Daniel have known all this? Well, that's the point. He couldn't. He didn't come up with this. This is not an anchovy revelation. This is a vision by God filling in the details of the previous visions. Another mark, another proof of the validity of Scripture. It's written in advance before any of these things ever happened. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, 200 years before he's even born on the earth, God mentions Cyrus as somebody he knew intimately. There's a bird in the North Arctic regions a long, narrow beak. It's called the guillemot. And the guillemot is interesting in that they flock together in thousands, and hundreds of the females lay their eggs on a long, narrow ledge, all together. And all their eggs look alike. They're little oval eggs. Even the trained experts can't tell one apart from the next. And they lay them all in the same area, hundreds, sometimes thousands of these little guillemot females lay their eggs, And though they look alike, a mother can distinguish her eggs from somebody else's. Instantly, in fact, they've even experimented by taking one egg out of its place. The mother guillemot can find the egg and returns it to its original location. Now, if a guillemot can do that, then the creator of the guillemot, knows every person, knows history in advance, and can say, oh, yes, Cyrus, I know him. How can he? He's not born. I'm God. That's how come. It's called being omniscient, knowing everything in advance. And so God reveals it to Daniel. Now notice verse 4. It says concerning this king, Cyrus, he did according to his will and became, and there's our word, he became great. That's a Hebrew word, Gadal. It means to become important, To do great things, to magnify yourself. Cyrus was great. He's on the top ten list of most important Persian men. But though he's great, and this is moving toward the point of greatness, there's always somebody greater and stronger than you are. You might make your splash, you might fill the sky with your fireworks. But it's temporary. Somebody will come along and make their splash and shoot their fireworks and you'll be forgotten. So here's Cyrus. Very great. He became important. He magnified himself. But what people tend to forget about kingdoms and rulers is that the powers that be will someday be the powers that have been. And very quickly does Cyrus become a has been. So which would you have? What kind of greatness do you want? You want to make a name for yourself? You want to be awesome? You want to be God all magnified on your own? Or do you want God's greatness? Remember what Jesus asked? What good is it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? But what? Loses his own soul. Better to be great for eternity. Hey, look at King Solomon. He was great. He was a king. He was very wealthy. He had it all. As a king of a nation, he wrote a book and he said these words. He said, I commanded, I communed, excuse me, with my heart and I said, look, I have attained greatness, but also this is just grasping for the wind. I have it all. I've become great. But when I look at the scheme of life, it's emptiness. It's grasping for the wind. It'll one day be over. There's a story about an agnostic writer, a brilliant man, an agnostic, kind of a bitter agnostic, who toured through Europe with his family, his wife and his young daughter. He was receiving awards from universities, royalty, famous people. When they got home, that little girl was so impressed with her daddy being so famous. And in her innocence, one day she said to her daddy, Daddy, I guess pretty soon you'll know everybody in the world except God. Well, what good is that? You know, people love to name drop. Well, I know the president. I know so-and-so. Do you know God? I know God. That's a pretty big name, wouldn't you say? And just knowing him provides you with that greatness. Now, let's look at the third one on our list after this Persian, and that is the prodigy. I've called him that for the sake of outline, the prophet, the Persian, the prodigy, because Alexander the Great was a genius militarily. Uh, We begin in verse 5 with him. I was considering suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. He came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground, trampling him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. So the Persian was great. This goat is greater. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place the four notable ones came up toward the four winds of the heaven. This goat with this conspicuous one horn would automatically draw our attention to the Grecian Empire, for those of you who are familiar with it. On the coins, certain Greek coins, was a goat. It was the symbol of Greece. In fact, the term Aegea, The city of Aegean, the Aegean Sea, which is by Greece, comes from the Greek word aegis, which means a goat. But we again don't have to guess what this is. Look down in verse 21. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Boy, I'm glad that's there. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Obviously it's speaking about Alexander the Great, the prominent king of Greece. Let me tell you a little bit about him. See how he fits in here. He was indeed great. In fact, he's called Alexander the Great One by his reputation. In verse one or verse eight, it says he became very great. Alexander's dad was named Philip, Philip of Macedon, himself a great conqueror managed to bring Macedonia and Greece together in a solid empire, was moving against the Medes and the Persians, and he was murdered when Alexander was 19 years old. While Alexander was growing up in the house, Alexander worried his dad. His dad looked at Alexander, who was a bookworm and a visionary, an indoor kind of a kid, and Philip was a little worried. He said, this kid won't amount to anything. and I want a strong man. And so he gave to his son a tutor, by the name of Aristotle, who trained and tutored him until he was of age. When at 19 his father was murdered, he decided to avenge the Medo-Persian Empire for what they had done to Greece 150 years past. At 21 years of age, he went away from his home and he conquered. And boy, did he conquer. He swept through the world very quickly. Even as we see this goat here moving, and it says the goat didn't even touch the ground. It's a turbo goat. I mean, it's just moving like breakneck speed. That's a fitting description of Alexander. In 11 years, his kingdom extended from his hometown west, south, and all the way to the borders of India till his troops were too tired to move on. He was a butcher. He killed thousands of people. He moved against the city of Tyre, asked them for provisions. They said no. He said fine. And he butchered the population of Tyre, killing them. He then moved southward, went toward Egypt, back up toward Syria, and eventually moved to the ancient city of Nineveh where he decimated the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire. The ram was crushed to the ground. Darius, Cyrus, all of the men were crushed. Alexander became very great. Let me tell you something else about him. His mom was a worshiper of a snake. That's right. A serpent god and serpent goddess was worshipped by Alexander's mom. When Alexander came home for a brief little interlude between killing people, Alexander's mom tried to convince him that his real dad was the serpent god, not Philip of Macedon. Imagine, your dad is a snake. I don't know if anybody ever told you this, son. But he believed that his father was a god and that he himself was a god. And he started magnifying himself and getting very prideful and getting very puffed up. And it caused some of his own generals, his his own uh, elite guard, to leave him because he became so prideful. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, All men can stand adversity, but if you want to really test a man's character, give him power. Power is the greatest test of a man's true character. Most people are in intoxicated by power. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Alexander became thirsty for power. He went back to Babylon. He started weeping because there was nothing left to conquer. His troops were too weak to move on. One night in Babylon, he attends a party in honor of one of his generals. Everybody's drinking heavily. He already has a touch of malaria and a fever. Somebody gives him a cup of wine that is bad. Some people even think Aristotle tried to poison it. He drank this wine. The malaria, the fever, along with a really drunk state, caused his end. And in the year 323 B.C., June 10th, this great horn was cut off. He was 31 years old. In the prime of his youth, this celebrity, this great one, is now just a few words in the pages of history. When Walt Disney was alive, a reporter asked him how it felt to be a celebrity. I know we often think, you know, I wish I was important. I wish I was a celebrity. Listen to what he said. He said, it feels fine, I guess, when being a celebrity helps me get a choice reservation at a football game. But as far as I can remember, being a celebrity has never helped me make a good picture or a good shot in a polo game or command the obedience of my daughter or impress my wife. It doesn't even seem to help keep fleas off of our dogs. And if being a celebrity won't even give me an advantage over a couple fleas, then I guess there can't be that much in being a celebrity after all. I think he had a good perspective. Something that Alexander the Great never had. Oh, he had the reputation of being great. Cyrus did too. Alexander was greater. But in verse 8, that notable horn is broken, cut down, ended. History. What is a great man? What is a great woman? What impresses God? What is great to God? Well, kings don't impress God. God doesn't see a king go, wow. Now, now that, that guy is impressive. He's the king of kings, all right? Earthly kings don't impress him. Do mighty conquerors impress God? No. Jesus will come again and conquer the entire globe. You know what impresses God and what makes a great man or a great woman? Well, let Jesus answer that. Remember, the disciples were having an argument. Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus said, don't you know, if you want to be the greatest, you should be the servant of all. What's the way up? It's the way down. That's the way up. That's greatness in God's kingdom. The greatest example of that is Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, became a man and humbled himself to the death on the cross. Alexander said, I will go up. God said, really? You'll go down. Jesus said, I will go down. And God highly exalted him and gave him a name above all names. Principle is still true. God exalts the humble But he puts down the proud. I want to conclude with a great poem I found. It fits this occasion perfect. The difference between Alexander and Christ. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life, a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life, but lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon, one on Calvary. One gained all for self, and one himself he gave... One conquered every tongue, the other every grave. The one made himself a god, the other made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever as the Lord of Lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves... The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth in heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. want to be king of the mountain for a day? Or child of God for eternity? Daniel, I, even I, I hope that's your relationship with God. God loves me. Me. God uses me. Imagine me. Humble yourself before God. He'll lift you up. Father, we thank you for the perspective of this prophet, this Persian, and this prodigy named Alexander the Great. And yet, though he was called great, he said whoever would be the greatest must become a slave, a servant. I pray, Father, that for all of us, that we would delight in being a servant of the Most High God, serving you, humbling ourselves before you, and serving your people. And, Father, I pray for those who have entered this building, this room, at the second service, who have never met the great God who rules And I pray, Lord, that in humility you'd cause them to go to that prayer room this morning and give their life to you through Jesus Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.